Hi everyone, this is Wendy Muse, creator of the Left Pocket Project and the host of the Left Pocket Project podcast. This is episode six. I'm excited to let you all know that the Left Pocket Project has expanded to several outlets beyond Twitter and SoundCloud. So right now you can find the Left Pocket Project podcast on SoundCloud, on Spreaker, and on iTunes simply by searching Left POC on all of those sites. You can also follow the Left Pocket Project by visiting Twitter, Left POC, on Patreon to show your support via Left POC, and you guessed it, also on Facebook and Media Revolt by searching for Left POC. Now for the show. Today I'll be speaking with two of the activists and founders of the Afro-Soc or the Afro-Socialist and Socialist of Color Caucus of the Democratic Socialists of America. The first of these is Yasmina Price. She's an activist and one of several founders of Afro-Soc. She is currently on the Racial Justice Steering Committee and Citywide Leadership Committee of the New York City DSA and works for New York Communities for Change a community organization fighting against racial oppression and economic injustice. Growing up in Niger, France, and Italy with mixed West African and American heritage has allowed her to become familiar with the global mechanisms of racism, imperialism, and colonialism, as well as the European left. She is committed to the possibility of radical change, the growth of robust networks of leftists of the African diaspora, and full abolition of all oppressive structures. I also speak with Jazz Hooks, who is an activist and another founder of AfroSoc. He is on the citywide leadership committee of the New York City DSA, representing the Bronx and Upper Manhattan branch. Growing up in the Bronx, Jazz Hooks has experienced the intersections of racism and capitalism and how they manifest in the day-to-day lives of the working class. He's devoted to building working class power to achieve a world free from capitalist oppression. So let's get started and hear my conversation with them. I'm here today with Jazz and Yasmina from Afro-Socialists of the Democratic Socialists of America. Thank you both for being here with me. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So I'm going to start with the bare bones basic question. Why DSA and how did you all become involved with Democratic Socialists of America? Yeah, so... I first heard about DSA from social media, like a lot of the members who joined after the boom. And I decided to join because I felt that the group had the greatest opportunity for the left to grow. And a lot of other people agreed because it's become the largest socialist organization in decades. And we created the Afro-Socialist Caucus because like, unfortunately, many left groups, the group isn't as diverse as it should be and we wanted to provide a space where people of color could come together and learn about things such as the black radical tradition and the history of other 
leftists of color and their influence on Western left thought and bring the ideas of trying to abolish the system of class oppression that we have that leads to racism, imperialism, all this other things, because we feel it closely tied to our experiences. My trajectory was a little bit more haphazard. Um, I hadn't heard about DSA at all until a random college friend um, invited me to go to a branch meeting with her, uh, and I did go. And it was right after the inauguration, so it was still uh, when the meetings were very heavily attended and there was an enormous amount of energy sort of post that huge catastrophe. Um, and a large part of the reason that I stuck with it, although like jazz, I was just sort of immediately shocked by the overwhelming whiteness of the organization was, um, that I joined the racial justice working group, which, uh, at the time we didn't have a steering committee yet. So it was headed, uh, basically entirely by our comrade Bianca who's also the chairperson of the labor branch. Um, and I think seeing a black woman at the head of a space which was speaking to the issues which were most important to me um, made it really easy to feel more comfortable, more at home. Um, and yeah, and then my involvement sort of escalated from, from there. And I think I'd also had a sort of growing left politic brewing uh, in part from because I came from countries where, you know, the word socialism wasn't a dirty word the way it is in the U.S. So can you all both actually give the listeners a bit of background? I want to rewind just a tad um, because I, I had heard some rumblings here and there about the group, um, primarily through criticism, which we'll get to in just a minute. But I wanted to know sort of the background itself on the group within the DSA. Um, how did you all coalesce to form the group? And then also, um, how did you all become involved in the social media aspect of the group? Well, we we knew that the national convention was on the horizon in the sort of mid-summer. Um, and both of us, as well as our comrades, um, Bianca, who I just mentioned, Kara, who's also on the steering committee of the Racial Justice Working Group, and also largely Andrew from the New Jersey chapter just sort of came together and realized, okay, well, the convention is happening, resolutions will pass, and this is exactly our opportunity uh, to make some important changes. And Jazz was the one who sort of dropped that initial seed of, we need a caucus. And we basically wrote the resolution and it passed. And from, from then on, we had official status as a DSA national caucus. Uh, but Jeff, I'm sure there's some details you want to add. The reason I thought that we should have a caucus is because we have, um, DSA has a very decentralized structure. So, you know, completely volunteer, you don't really have much say over making people do things. So we wanted to have it, you know, be all voluntary association. You can opt in to a caucus. And we felt that, I felt that would be the most efficient way to have people communicate on a national level and having it pass its convention ensure that we would have access to national resources and that the entire organization's representatives would be involved in ensuring that this is something that the organization sees as necessary and supports. 
how did you all end up having a relationship with BYP? Because from what I understand, the caucus also involves a lot of input from groups like Black Youth Project and others. You know, how does this how does this work within the organization? Well, it's actually it's it's really not. We don't actually have a strong working relationship with them as it stands. Um, the way that um, their agenda for Black Futures came to be written into the resolution was that I'd come across it and read it, and it's just an incredible document. And I think it's just such a, a concise primer about a lot of the things that we see ourselves as fighting for as Black and leftists of color. And we definitely do not want to replicate that, you know, what is often sort of white gesture of appropriating someone else's work just to mm -hmm. sort of replicate it. Um, so we thought instead of trying to reinvent the wheel, here's this fantastic document. Uh, we got their permission to, to officially endorse it as part of our resolution. And, and so we did just that. So that's actually a nice segue to thinking about some of the criticisms of the caucus. Um, it's actually interesting because before I started following you all on social media through the Left Pocket Project, I had been, I had mainly been hearing negative things, unfortunately. Um, and while I obviously support the cause, and I think that what you all are doing is great, and it's definitely necessary to always have um, a more, a closer engagement, I should say, with some of the issues that are facing people of color, that are facing women, et cetera. Um, I found that some of the, the criticisms were outweighing what you all were actually doing in terms of work. Um, and one of those criticisms that has been made um, is that the caucus is some form of tokenism within the DSA, which still remains from what I understand predominantly white. Another criticism that I've heard is that because you all incorporated some of this stuff from the BYP resolution or the, the um, document, which I think you fairly well explained just now, but just to get you know get a, a full response to this criticism, um, some people have alleged that it's odd to have this sort of outside group dictating the terms of a resolution that's for a separate group. And so I was just wondering, now that you all have the opportunity and we're talking about it, how you all have personally felt about some of these criticisms and how you would take this opportunity to respond to some of them, and in particular thinking about what you all have done within the DSA um, on your own end, how would you respond to some of the criticism that I'm sure you all have heard and maybe even possibly discussed uh, within DSA? We first heard that criticism that you raised um, about the term that I think Adolf Reed and Adam Proctor used was farming out our platform, mm -hmm. but we pretty much already endorsed as a as socialist organization that has engagement with electoral politics a lot of that stuff in the platform is social democratic reforms, things such as universal health care, free college education that the organization already supported. There's, I would say, probably nothing in there that the, we are organizationally against and we are endorsing that specific document and the principles within that. And I don't see any problem with that because it lines up very well with what we're doing and we're acknowledging the people who made it and giving a shout out to wonderful Black-led organization doing great work. And I think there was also just, a, it was bizarre because obviously our, or maybe not obviously, but our resolution was made public and shared. So I think it, it, I mean, from reading it, I would have assumed that it was clear that, you know, the endorsement of BYP's 
agenda was one point amongst many. I don't understand why um, people came to assume that it was dictating the entire terms of our caucus when it was a part of it, definitely an important part, but it, it's odd that it uh, overshadowed things. And I think it is just because it was sort of an easy point to stir up controversy more than anything else. Mm -hmm. And what, I mean, like, as I was, as I was listening to what you were just saying, I was thinking, okay, beyond, beyond this particular point of controversy, right, which I think, indeed, it was um, sort of something that people hyper-focused on, and I think that detracted away from a lot of the work that you all were doing within the DSA. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the work that the caucus does, and even perhaps um, resolutions or things that you all talked about during the convention, and how you all are applying them in the present. So the major thing that we've done since the resolution passed was the Afro-Socialist training weekend we had. We brought in people from chapters all over the country to be part of a, a paid training, a completely paid for training where we learned things like organizing skills or we reviewed things such as organizing skills. We talked about the history of racial oppression and how to capitalism we talked about the vision we have for building leadership and identifying leaders in our own chapters to try and provide people who as yasmina said earlier you know seeing bianca in a leadership role was an influence on her joining dsa because we while we're not only about optics we understand that optics still matter and we want to have we want to empower people to be leaders in their own right, not just on a basis of tokenization, but because we believe that it's truly important for us to have a strong multiracial left to have real accomplishments. Well, I think, um, and one, I mean, maybe this is something we should have said before, which is implied in the, the very existence of the caucus, was that it was and continues to be, I think, essential for our Black and members of color to have a space in which we can organize around issues, or at least through a lens, which is especially pertinent, pertinent to our life experience. But I think the, the caucus coming into being, I think we all perceived as sort of setting a foundation for a sort of work to move forward, which hadn't necessarily been possible because the organization is so white and the few members of color that we have were just so dispersed and we didn't have a way to connect with each other. And I know definitely for me, the fact that that resolution, the caucus passing, um, allowed us to also establish that, you know, we are pro-abolition, we're pro-reparations. Um, and I know that for my work in, in the chapter through the Racial Justice Working Group um, around the Right to Know Act, for example, which is, it, it's, it's a piece of reform, ultimately. It's definitely not as radical. So in terms of how the work of the caucus and the resolution connects to work that we've been doing in our chapters, I think it was important for us as a caucus to know that our pro-abolition stance has been established as a baseline because in New York and the Racial Justice Working Group, we've been working on something called the Right to Know Act, which is a piece of legislative reform. And it is something which would 
help with um, police transparency and accountability in the context of stopping people because it would it would mean that there would be an enforceable law that they would have to give their name and a reason for the stop. So this is obviously not especially radical. It's definitely not nearly as strong a statement as I would want to make. But I think knowing that that small piece of manageable work is happening within a framework where we know that ultimately we want full police and prison abolition is important because I think uh, we we need to have a very strong um, and clear idea of what our ultimate goals are in order to move forward, knowing that, you know, a lot of this work takes time and is slow. And our caucus officially came into being in, in August, but it, it has been an incremental progress. Um, because none of these things happen overnight at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. And the, the work that you all do, is it completely separate? Like, do you all, do you all have sort of, um, a moment that you report back to the larger chapters of the DSA or how does, how does the DSA incorporate what you all are, are doing, um, in the larger platform? How did, what's sort of the, the background on that process? Furthermore, what are the, is there a relationship that you all have? between um, your working group or your caucus and other caucuses? Because if I'm not mistaken, there's a caucus, for example, on um, women's rights or something of that sort, right? So how how do you all operate within the, the organization itself and also with other sub-caucuses or caucuses within the larger group? We have a large degree of autonomy to uh, do things as we see fit, as long as you know we're not doing something out of left field. <laughs> <laughs> but in general, we um, have been trying to do educational events in New York mostly, and we're reaching out to other chapters to try and get them to do more educational events. And we also do social events. How the first meetings happened was Bianca had happy hours for people of color to, you know, have us connect before we had the official caucus. And we also do the way we connect with other other groups within DSA is we do power calls once a week, all the different groups and parts of DSA get together on a call and we give a small report back on what our week has been like. And that's our opportunity to communicate with any other group that we want to collaborate with or have questions for. For example, on the last one I was on, we had, uh, I had a request to the social media team, the national social media team. So I just said that and then our national director sent an email linking me to the social media team things of that nature make it really much easier to communicate and on the local level we've also we're also doing to do an event with the socialist feminist working group that's the one you were referring to about women's rights mm -hmm. and that's also a large uh a relatively large group of people in dsa and that was um the fact that the socialist feminist feminist working group exists is also a reason that we saw it would be a good thing to have a people of color caucus. So the event that we're doing in New York that we're going to be collaborating with the socialist feminist working group on, we're doing an event talking about um, black women's health impacts and the ways that capitalism fails black women in the healthcare system and why are, we have a focus organizationally on Medicare for all right now. It's one of our three main national priorities and 
we want to talk about what we can do as socialists to address the problems that capitalism can't for black women's health. And because it's not only about the healthcare system, it's also about housing, it's about environment, and we have to connect that all to a larger framework to show what we're going to do about the disparities. Uh, I would add, uh, in terms of our our connection to, to other caucuses, that I think that's also, um, that is an area where I think we, we really can't at this point sort of discard the social media aspect of organizing in 2018 um, because I think part of um, well because what we're we're fighting against other than capitalism and the sort of big bad is you know the sort of constant shooting ourselves in the foot which I think sort of inevitably happens in a big tent organization and I'm one of three people who run the AfroSoc Twitter account and I think that that is where we we sort of we show up for each other. We show up for each other's issues. Um, for example, the veterans working group is very good about very very consistently supporting AfroSoc, uh, the queer caucus, the same. I think sometimes it is that because there is um, a measure of this work which will be happening in this sort of virtual sphere, which will have a lot of fractures and a lot of problems um, and and sometimes sometimes that is knowing that we of various caucuses are coming from a place where we are marginalized peoples and I think it really matters that we show up for each other um, you know be it the queer caucus the disability caucus so that that actually is a great segue because my next question for you all is really thinking about what that work has been like, because just on my own doing, you know, having a, a personal page on Twitter and Facebook and the like, um, and then trying to run the Left Pocket Project entirely by myself, there has been, there have been moments where I definitely have had to deal with trolls. There have been moments where I've dealt with people, um, you know, copying my content as, as just as Wendy Muse, people who have taken things out of context and the like. And I feel like with you all being the sort of face online, at least for uh, the Afro-Socialist Caucus, what has that process and experience been like? Because just thinking about all the things that we saw during election 2016 and then the aftermath, um, and not even just you know thinking about uh, trolling and the like that you may get from Republicans and liberals, but also even from other people who are self-proclaimed left-leaning uh, Twitter users, um, what has that process been like? How have you all tried to sort of, um, I don't know, I don't want to say, I don't want to say sort of calm down the process, but I just, I know how people get really conditioned to piling on. And so I was wondering, how do you all sort of um, deal with this issue? What have been some of the problems that you face if it goes beyond what I just discussed? Um, and how do you all deal with that while being the, the sole face, if you will, really, um, the sort of central hub for, people of African descent within DSA as represented online? Well, I think one thing that definitely helps or which I keep in the back of my mind is that this is ultimately not the space where the most important work is happening and it shouldn't be. Um, so I think that knowing 
the, the things which are explosive online, which are scandalous online, which um, really grip people are often not the things that actually really matter. Uh, that said, it's, um, I don't know. I mean, actually, first I would like to say that it's running that Twitter. So with um, uh, Nick, who's in the LA chapter, and Sean Scott from Seattle has largely been extremely heartening because I think it's it's been, which is not to say that we're, I mean, I would, I would definitely not dare to say that we're endorsed by uh, black and person of color Twitter left on the whole, because I'm, I'm not entirely sure. Um, but I feel like people who are very skeptical about DSA have very serious and totally valid qualms with DSA as an organization have still been willing to be accepting of us as black and people of color within the organization. And I think that does show a really important measure of solidarity, which is hard to gauge, uh, you know, sort of on the ground in your chapter where, yes, the most important work is happening, but it, it you know, it's, it, it's harder to know um, how you fit in a larger sphere of, of things. And to be honest, I don't feel like as Afrosoc on Twitter, we've had that many problems. I think there, there have been problems within DSA that have come out, which we've expressed our position on and would not hesitate to do so in any context. But I mean, I wouldn't say that we've been especially trolled or attacked um, or anything. I mean, it's, it's been kind of wonderful to see um, messages from from people uh, who aren't, because obviously since we're, we're based in New York, but who aren't based in New York, who are interested in the essay because of the caucus, interested in being on the listserv. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, it, it's shown that it, it is a way to set up a sort of connective tissue between all of us. Yeah, I mostly agree. I think the majority of problems that we've had on social media, as Yasmina said, like there have been other things going on in DSA because we're not an organization that prevents you from speaking about organizational disputes openly. So all of left Twitter gets a hold of them and <laughs> we all, you know, feel the need to weigh in. And so we haven't had that much trolling for the caucus other than I think that the people who have expressed concerns about the caucus had, for the most part, legitimate political questions, and we're working to address those questions with all the work we do and putting on our educational events, connecting things to larger framework of how does the system of capitalism harm people of color all over the world to everyone, not just DSA members. That's the most important part, I think, of any leftist you know, you want to connect all the things that people are going through and the pain they're experiencing under capitalism and say that you can do something about it. And it's not just you, it's the system. And we want to make that accessible for everyone beyond just reading. Reading is awesome, but that's not everyone's primary mode of engagement or how everyone best learns. So we want to expose people to all different forms of knowledge to advance leftism. Thinking about that, it's really important that we keep in mind, you know, ways to reach out to people beyond just reading, as you said, and also beyond that, how to get off social media, right? Because even while social media is a super important tool for organizing, sometimes it, I think 
it almost gives the impression that we're doing the work when sometimes it's not, I mean, it can't be the end all be all, right? And while I think that everyone has a different role, like I know my role uh, more or less is that of um, someone who teaches and someone who can use social media as a tool for teaching. I think in your case, obviously social media is operating as a tool to help organizing that's going on offline as well. And so I was wondering beyond the sessions that you mentioned that you wanted to have, sort of the educational sessions um, and, and live events in New York and elsewhere, what are some other means that you all have used in order to create a better sense of outreach to the communities that you're targeting? Um, in particular, considering that you all work or you're, you're comprised of people of African descent, how do you all, or what is the role that you see yourself as having in performing greater outreach to the larger Black community within the United States? What are some of the methods uh, to that? With Black History Month coming up, uh, we are doing a series of events in New York. Um, and one thing we really want to do is to try, um, if we can find ones that are willing to to have us to do educational outward facing events in, for example, the recreation centers in in community centers or um, in the projects, because we don't. That's the thing is that we we really are not looking to just speak into this DSA echo chamber that's not going to get us anywhere. Um, and that's one small thing, but I think which which would make a difference in terms of um, sort of opening ourselves. And I think that definitely the, the overarching method we want to use um, in terms of anything we do is showing our communities that we come from um, that DSA has something to offer first before doing anything else because we're not we're not looking to go in with a variant on a white saver complex of here we are we're going to fix your problems no we show we first need to prove that we have something to offer and then sort of build from there so, because definitely as Afro socialists the sort of practice that we want to embody is one where we show up for, you know, marginalized communities that we come from or different marginalized communities and show that we can provide something. And that should definitely start from actually providing a service from an actual material benefit. Because, I mean, frankly, give a fuck if we show up with a pamphlet and just hand it to someone that's not doing anything for them. And one program that's been undertaken in, in DSA, which started in New Orleans, uh, was for fixing brake lights. And that's actually, that's materially helpful for someone who has a broken brake light because we're not trying to replicate um, this sort of white savior methodology of just showing up in a community and saying, hi, we're here and we're going to save you, but not actually doing anything to back that up. Yeah, so I understand that completely because I'm someone who's, born and raised in the Bronx, New York. So, and, you know, from a low-income community, I still live there. I, my income isn't exactly that great. <laughs> so I understand that concern, especially, you know, in New York, a lot of our membership are people who were not born and raised in New York. So we want to, you know, be truly involved in the community and 
one of the big things that got me to accept socialism and reject capitalism is my experiences growing up in the Bronx. So as leftists, you know, we have to do everything we can to get people to realize that it's not just an unfortunate circumstance going on in your life, as I said earlier. And as Nina said, helping people with material things is a wonderful project to do that. In New York City, we've made tenant organizing. Well, we're working on making tenant organizing our citywide campaign. So we're going to be, you know, trying true solidarity between people who are moving in and people who have already been there to work together to form tenant organizations to challenge landlords and the power of capital. Because the real estate industry in New York is, as with anywhere else, but especially New York, straight up evil. Like, there's no other way to put it. Yeah, I mean, on that note, I was actually wondering if you all do, at least in the New York chapter, I know you're not necessarily able to speak to the others, although if you can, feel free. What are some of the things that you all have been doing to work with organizations that are already on the ground, if there is any sort of relationship um, between DSA or even AfroSoc on its own, um, and other organizations that already exist in New York or other parts of the country? What has that process been like for you all? Well, one good example, and this is not something I was directly involved in, um, but it was, uh, I think, one of the most successful campaigns um, of NYC DSA, which was um, for the Bedford Armory. And this came out of the housing working group. And sort of in terms of your question of liaising with different organizations, um, one of the women leading it, Sia, uh, worked for an organization called New York Communities for Change, which I also work for, um, which means that she you know, was at this perfect crux between NYCC and DSA uh, and sort of helped to rally the two around this extremely important issue because uh, the Bedford Armory is supposed to be public land, um, but uh, was and, oh, can you to... can you back up just a tad? I'm sorry to interrupt you, but can you tell the larger audience what that is for people outside of New York? What is the Bedford Armory, Armory um, and what what was the controversy over the location? Oh yeah, of course. Um, so it's a piece of public land, and the the controversy was that it was being bought um, by. Uh, real estate to be turned into condos, into luxury condos. So, you know, just, just be a very, yet another strong cog in the machinery of gentrification. And so there was work in DSA in liaison with this organization, NYCC, uh, to basically stop that development from happening. So this campaign was actually part of a large coalition of many organizations in New York. And while we unfortunately didn't get the sort of win we hoped for, which would have been for the land to remain public and affordable and not run the risk of becoming a luxury condo, today the project is at least more affordable than it once was. Um, and there's a 10% homeless set aside in the project. So something important was accomplished. Um, it was definitely a large compromise win, but I think it was a good example of uh, New York's DSA being in a successful coalition with other organizations who you know, may not share our leftist socialist vision, but there, there will be overlaps um, in terms of 
the work uh, that we do and the work that, say, an organization working on homelessness does or just racial disparity or economic injustice, et cetera. Right. And that's definitely something that's very New York specific, right? Because obviously with the brake light situation in a place where you have more people who are driving, um, this makes a lot more sense. Obviously, there are people driving in New York, but the, the numbers are a bit smaller than you would have in a city that doesn't have public transportation, right? Um, so it does seem like at least you all are trying to do something that's, that's city specific um, in this case. And I, I hope that there will be more initiatives like this moving forward um, of collaborations between DSA or AfroSoap on its own um, and with other community groups on the ground, if not uh, for, for the sake of helping something that's pre-existing, maybe for the sake of building something new um, that can help fill a gap that, that emerges as New York City continues to become a playground for the rich more than it has ever been, I think, uh, in previous years. Um, the other question I had for you all actually is, you know, where do you see the space, a space like AfroSoap in the future? Um, because I, I think that sometimes we have, not we, me personally, but I think sometimes in, a, in thinking about socialism, there's, there's on occasion this idea that, you know, once the revolution comes and once things are all sorted out, there's not necessarily a need for this, these types of smaller sub-organizations to function within it. And I'm wondering what that kind of, what does the future look like for a group like these, like AfroSoak and also perhaps the caucuses, right? The, the individual caucuses for different communities. We've seen online that there have been points where these caucuses have really come into to really have a voice and I think speak rather boldly and strongly for some of the interests of these groups and in particular access to resources and important issues that they feel are not being covered. But I wonder, is there a point at which for y'all, if you feel like uh, some of the caucuses will either become absorbed or no longer serve the same relevance? I'm just curious what you all think that, that the future looks like. I think we definitely are, unfortunately, quite far away from the processes <laughs> becoming redundant because, you know, because everyone has just so deeply absorbed taking everyone's interest into account that it won't even be necessary to fight for that. But I mean, I think definitely the the envisionable less, next step that I see would be uh, for AfroSoft as a national caucus to actually have a strong local presence in all DSA chapters, because that is by no means the case yet. And I, I think maybe one important or indicative thing to point out would be that when Bianca initially started doing uh, the Afro-Socialist Happy Hours, which predated the, the caucus coming into existence, these were not at all closed to DSA members. They They were at the time, and are still, we're actually having one on the 25th of January in New York. Um, we just see them as a space for all black and leftists of color to come together. It's not, it's not about joining DSA, it's about building solidarity within the black left. And I think we, we, we want that to, to continue um, because ultimately, you know, we wanna stand in strong, actionable solidarity with our people. And I think get to the point where AfroSoft as a national caucus with its local outposts um, to be able to provide uh, consistent uh, 
services and um, to actually be a true part of the the community. And I know that, and with good reason, the Black Panthers to Breakfast program is sort of the go-to example that gets brought up all the time. But I think because it's it's a fantastic example, and I think it's the sort of work that we want to be doing down the line. And obviously, I know that um, people have issues with with mutual aid, but at the end of the day, capitalism makes it impossible for people to live in the most basic sense. And I think I really appreciate you bringing up that point about, you know, that sort of abstraction of when the revolution comes, when the revolution comes. But yeah, in the meantime, people need to eat and they need to have shelter and they need to be, and they need healthcare. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think in, in whatever informal and disseminated and sort of infinitely replicable ways we can help to instill those sorts of practices we want to. I definitely agree with Yasmina that there's going to be a need for the caucuses and different working groups based around identities for a while because DSA seeks to be a mass organization that accepts people at all levels of political knowledge. And I think that it's vital that we have these different groups to ensure that people who have differing levels of knowledge of leftism and might have no concepts about intersectionality yet or be very familiar with them, that people from those communities are involved in shaping the conversation from their perspective among people who hold similar values and have similar experiences that can be reflected in our policies and what we teach to members of our organization. And what you spoke to about, you know, when the revolution comes, you know, will it be necessary? I think that (laughs) um, probably still for a bit, it took, you know, hundreds of, if not thousands of years to get to the point of all different oppressions we are at now today of class society. It might take who knows how many generations to truly do away with all of them. And in the abstract, none of us can really say exactly exactly how long it would take to end, you know, the racism that people have and has been conditioned into them. But we're glad to be part of an organization that where even if people don't know things, they supported us creating the different groups such as the Social Feminist Working Group, Afrosoc Caucus, the Disability Working Group, because they see the value in learning from us and our experiences. And that's something I really admire about the organization, even though a lot of people do not have um, a lot of um, established political knowledge when they join, they're always willing to learn. And I think that's something that we can all appreciate. Yeah, definitely. And I I really appreciate both of your answers, actually, because you started to touch on history. And and for both of your answers, actually, you started talking about, you know, um, on the one hand, yes, you know, you started mentioning the Black Panthers and the sort of basic material needs that many of their initiatives sought to to take care of and to cover for the community. Um, And also Jazz, your comment about sort of thinking about the large deray, right, of revolution. And while my my comment about revolution was a bit in jest, obviously, not that that I'm against revolution, I think we Mm -hmm. do need one, that's for sure. Um, But I think, you know, just kind of framing it in that way is a bit of a joke, but I think it's an important point that um, for both of you to have raised, thinking about the ways of I guess the importance of what we're doing in the now, right? Um, Because while I think our our projected visions of a future are one thing, um, we have to also deal with the immediate and we have to have both of these things operating in tandem. Um, So that's really important. 
My last question is related to history, actually, and I was wondering from both of you if there was a family member or a place that you've been or even a particular historical figure that has that compelled your um, left-leaning tendencies and your desire to join an organization like DSA. I know, Jazz, you mentioned having grown up in the Bronx um, and being within a family that um, was considered lower income, or at least your experiences as such, really motivated you to kind of start questioning capitalism and questioning the way the world works. Um, I'm curious from both of you if there was something specific or perhaps a series of events that really started you to think a little bit more towards the left as a potential answer um, to fixing some of the problems that you've seen and or dealt with. Okay, so the biggest historical figures to influence um, my own turn towards leftism were um, Martin Luther King and uh, probably Asada Shakur. I read, you know, reading about their justifications for why they saw racism connected to capitalism really inspired me. And I connected that with things that I was learning in college. And I internalized it because when I was learning about Marxist theory in college and intro poli sci class and the criticisms of pluralism, you know, the idea that everything is more or less equal in society and the state is a neutral actor. Um, when you look at their, what they said about uh, their criticisms of the state and capitalism as a whole, the ways that it limits black people and it perpetuates our oppression, especially with the different incomes, it really brought me over. And I would also add that the experiences of the Obama administration were a huge factor because I was, I started college in 2012, you know, in Obama's second term, I was happy to vote for him then, even though I felt like he was weak and seeing him fail to accomplish even his liberal promises and seeing things such as police brutality perpetuate without him making a strong stand and reading about how leftists have consistently criticized things such as police brutality and said that the state can never truly address it because it's such an important part of upholding capitalism using a force to keep down minorities, basically. That was a huge impact on bringing me over. But I did, so it's a mix between my lived experiences growing up in the Bronx, seeing low income, you know, seeing poverty all around, living in New York, seeing extreme wealth on one block and homeless people walking the streets on another, or sometimes on the same block. <laughs> <laughs> that all had a big influence in shaping my worldview. So that's why I fundamentally believe that we can convinced a huge section of the working class that issues they're going through are not just isolated, they're connected to this larger system. And it's vital for us to do that if we want to win and have a better society that gets rid of all these class oppressions. I would say, um, I, I, I mean, I can obviously think of so many people, but I think currently, and it's definitely related to the fact that I just finished reading Freedom is a Constant Struggle. Mm -hmm. um, but I think Angela Davis is just sort of the 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 timeless ideal I have in my mind of the sort of practice that I would hope to to have or play a part in and so because I am half West African and I mean I say half you know the, in the genetic division um, <laughs> but that definitely informs my being a lot more than you know this American passport that I have for some odd reason. Um, and and actually also this maybe connects to um, 
the broader question of what I personally hope Afrofoc, um hope and am determined to make happen um, in terms of its effect on DFA as a larger organization is I really want us to have a strong anti-imperial, anti-colonial stance. Um, and I think she embodies that sort of broad-based conception of, of liberation. Because I think, I mean, to be honest, when I think of Black radicalism, I think of precisely that thing which liberates everyone. I mean, yes, it is about Black people, but it's about liberation for all across the board. And, you know, her work coming out so strongly with Palestinian solidarity is something that I also feel very strongly about, um, of just having this large conception of of um, abolition. And I, I, yeah, I just, I, I really hope for a future in which um, the African diaspora isn't dispersed in the different violences it's suffered because of the West without a strong network of connection and solidarity fighting back against that. Thank you. I mean, I really, I appreciate both of your um, experiences and, and the things that you draw upon to sort of frame your current day activism and your current day involvement. And I hope that some of what you've said here today can help other people who are in the process of sort of figuring out their own political trajectory and on their own political journeys um, to rethink sort of the norm of what they've heard throughout their lives and to start questioning a bit more of what's considered, you know, the status quo. So thank you both for being here. And that was episode six of the Left Pocket Project podcast. Thanks so much to Jazz and Yasmina for joining me. You can follow them and more of the work that Afrosoft does by visiting them on Twitter at Afrosoc, and that's A-F-R-O-S-O-C-D-S-A. Again, that's Afrosoc, D-S-A, A-F-R-O-S-O-C-D-S-A. And I'd like to give a special thanks to Michael Salomon, who actually gave me the permission to use his song, My Life as a Video Game, as the theme music for the Left Pocket Project podcast. Finally, while we're on the subject of thanks, I'd like to give a special shout out to my patrons who started following me. Thank you so much for your support. I really appreciate it. In the meantime, if you'd like to learn more about the Left Pocket Project, please follow me on Twitter, and that's at LeftPOC, on Facebook, and that's facebook.com slash LeftPOC, and now on Media Revolt, just search, of course, LeftPOC. And I'm on Reddit and Spreaker and SoundCloud and iTunes, all by easily searching for Left PRC. Thanks again for listening and have a good one. I'll lay, I'll lay, I'll lay, I'll lay.